Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Lot 6, everyone's favorite in the auction today, I believe, for the Pteranodon Horus. In the posh Upper East Side of New York City is Sotheby's, one of the world's most famous art auction houses. And just a week ago, they had some unexpected items on the block. From the Cretaceous period, and we can get going here at $2 million, $2 million, $2 million, Although it's not actually a dinosaur, the Pteranodon was a dinosaur-like flying reptile that roamed around the planet 85 million years ago. Horus was being sold as part of a natural history auction, something that's being seen more at major auction houses around the world. Dinosaur bones and other fossils are becoming big business. In 2020, a Tyrannosaurus rex sold for over $31 million at Christie's, another auction house famous for its art collections. But the practice is dividing scientists. Some paleontologists think that the private sale of dinosaurs and other old fossils means specimens are being lost to science. Yet is it really that simple? Could fossil auctions actually be a good thing for paleontology? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Kenneth Kukier, standing in for Alok this week. Today, the debate over auctioning dinosaur fossils. Since about 2018, there has been a dramatic rise in the frequency and the volumes of money being spent at auctions by big auction houses, Sotheby's, Christie's, the ones that you usually associate with selling Van Gogh's or Gauguin's or Rothko's. That's our correspondent, Dylan Barry. But instead of selling paintings, they've been selling dinosaur fossils, particularly T-Rexes, and they've been going for millions and millions of dollars. That's incredible. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Who owns this stuff? So that's an interesting question. It depends where in the world you are. If you're in a place like America, the property owner owns the fossil. If you own a piece of property, you own a ranch or something in Montana or South Dakota or North Dakota, and you find a T-Rex skull on your property, it's yours and you can do with it what you like. You can sell it, you can destroy it, you can do whatever you please. That is not true elsewhere in the world, though. So if you live somewhere like China or Mongolia or Brazil or South Africa, often fossils, even if they're discovered on private land, are property of the state. So there are all kinds of property regimes that govern the buying and selling and ownership of fossils in different bits of the world. So in countries like America, where you have private ownership of dinosaur bones, where does the money go? To the owner, presumably. Exactly. So if you are a property owner in the States and you find a T-Rex skull on your property, you can basically do with it what you please. But if you want to make the big bucks, the biggest and best thing you can do is take it to a major auction and see if they're willing to put it on sale to some rich buyers for millions and millions of dollars. So who's doing the digging? 
So that's a good question. So sometimes these are found accidentally, right? So you've got a piece of land and one day you kind of trip over something jutting out of the ground and it happens to be a triceratops skull or something like that. So often it's accidental discoveries. But there is now, partly because these fossils are going for many millions of dollars at auctions, there's an increasing industry of commercial private fossil prospectors who specifically go around snooping around private land trying to find the big payoff in terms of a big dinosaur fossil. So I'm sure you've spoken to some of these great prospectors. Tell me their stories. Exactly. I had a particularly interesting conversation with a gentleman named Clayton Phipps, who describes himself as a dinosaur cowboy. I got that name. Uh, A friend of mine and I would go out prospecting, looking for dinosaurs, and any of the ranches that he had permission to be on, he would introduce me to the landowner as a dinosaur cowboy. And, And before I got into fossils and looking for fossils and dinosaur hunting, I just worked on various ranches around our area, um, some of the bigger ones, just as a cowboy, riding and gathering cows and looking at the landscape. Can you tell me a little bit about the dueling dinosaurs and that that kind of major discovery? My friend Mark Eatman and Chad O'Connor and I went out for the day looking for fossils. And Mark Eatman was actually the first one that found the bone chips that led up to the uh, pelvis of the dinosaur coming out. And we weren't very excited. You know, I I walked back through the canyon that he described where it was, and I found this pelvis, and I took some pictures of it that day. It was probably four foot long by three foot wide and, you know, three foot deep. It was just a pelvis. And we probably would have never even went back to that site because it was in a rugged canyon. We'd have to build a road down there to get this pelvis out. We couldn't carry it out. And no collector or no museum is going to pay us the cost of what would go into just collecting that pelvis. But the femur was articulated into the pelvis. So we knew that, you know, there's a possibility there's more of the dinosaur there. But we really weren't even thinking about it. But Chad, because it was his first day ever looking for a dinosaur, he's like, well, we found a dinosaur. We have to go collect it. And, you know, he just didn't understand how risky that gamble would be to go back and try to see if there's more of that pose. A lot of dinosaur projects that I've started on are not worthwhile. You literally are taking a huge gamble to put any money into a project, not knowing if it's going to turn out. Anyway, he kind of talked me into going back. And, uh, you know, as we got into it, we realized we had a fully articulated triceratops skeleton. We basically knew where his skeleton was because every bone was in place. That never happens. Normally, there's another bone maybe 10 feet away, and they got scavenged and picked apart, and, you know, they're just scattered. Most dinosaur sites are big, like a football field size area you try to clear, and you hope you find more. But this one was such a crazy project because every bone was laying like he died. And about two weeks into it, I'm working with a backhoe, and I have that one completely perimetered. What are the odds of another dinosaur being there? So I go to dump my bucket, and there's bone chips in it, and I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what happened here? So I jumped out, started brushing in the bucket there, and a meeting dinosaur hand claw starts to appear. And I'm like, what in the heck? You know, this, this, we're not working on a meat eater here. What's going on? So, so I jumped down in the quarry where I'd just scraped that bucket out, and this hand and this leg start to appear. And, man, we spent about two more weeks, and we have that dinosaur pretty well perimetered. And, yeah, it's a carnivore, and obviously they weren't friends. You know, what are they doing together? The whole story was just insane. And I... Uh, the whole project was just a dream. You know, we, we were very blessed to find it. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. We, we had some news crews come out and film it and, uh, you know, do a little story. And, and it hit the AP wire and, and news started to get out. It's not easy to make a living out here in the arid land of Montana. I mean, it's, a, it's dry land country. And my family struggled for a lot of years. I mean, we may look like we had a lot of money on paper because we owned some land, but we literally couldn't afford a hamburger at McDonald's, and most of them still have operating notes at the bank to continue. I mean, it's a tough country to make a living in. So if I can help these landowners realize something for their fossils, I'm, I'm proud of that fact. So people like Clayton dig for these bones. 
Who buys them? So the real boom in auctions started with the very first major fossil auction by Sotheby's in 1997. They sold Sue, the very nearly complete skeleton of a T-Rex. It was initially bought by the Chicago Field Museum. So in the beginning, it was really big public institutions that were buying up these fossils. Through the 2000s, the market simmered a little bit. There were occasional sales, but nothing major. Then the 2010s hit. From about 2018 onwards, you started getting these major, major sales. That seems to have been driven partly by a lot of money sloshing around in the pockets of tech bros. So a lot of Silicon Valley types who grew up sort of really loving dinosaurs and had some money to spend. They've stopped spending that money on Rothko's and Van Gogh's and very expensive paintings and other artworks, and they've started investing them in fossils. Okay, so I can see a bit of controversy here. It's a little bit like illuminated manuscripts of the medieval times in which you have this beautiful artifact that's part of our cultural heritage. And if you rip it in half and you give half of the book to one person, half of the book to the other, or individual pages rather than the artifact in its integrity, you can make a lot of money, but you lose something precious as well at the same time. So I suppose the question is, Are the collectors only interested in the bones because they're really cool? Or is there a preservation and scientific inquiry dimension to it as well? There's a bit of both, but it's very controversial, arguably even more so than the situation you were talking about with manuscripts. There's a lot of tension between the kind of commercial fossil market, auction houses like Sotheby's and commercial fossil prospectors like Clayton and academic professional paleontologists. To learn a bit more about this, we chatted with Paul Barrett, who's a fossil curator at the London Natural History Museum. We got the chance to go down into their underground fossil vaults to see some of their collections and have a chat. So what we're doing right now is taking out of the collection, sliding it out on its very heavy pallet, the first lower jaw of a T-Rex ever found anywhere in the world. And so this is one of our research specimens that lives down here in the dinosaur collection. Uh, But its partner, the other lower jaw, is actually out on display in the public dinosaur gallery. But it's pretty heavy. And we've had this in our collection since the 1960s. Cheers. We're looking at, this is about a metre long section of lower jaw with some very aggressive teeth. (laughs) Do you want to describe it for us a little bit? Sure. So the jaw is very deep and powerful, as you might expect, for the largest predator that ever lived on land. Some of these teeth are up to about 30 centimetres in length, and they look like railroad spikes with uh, little tiny state life light serrations along the side. So this is an animal that was engineered to crunch through bones, and not only bones, but the bones of other dinosaurs. Yeah, it's quite a quite a fearsome sight. And just looking around the room, you know, we're deep in a basement. There are stacks and stacks and stacks of fossils behind us. Do you want to talk a little bit about the rest of the collection and some of the other things you've got in here? So, yeah, we have one of the largest fossil collections in the world. We have, we think, about 8 million individual fossil specimens in this building. So this goes back all the way to the dawn of paleontology as a science, uh, some very key figures that were important in the early history of the subject, all the way through to now. We still have colleagues going out actively collecting all around the world, bringing things back to enhance our collections and do new science with them. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how the Natural History Museum sources its fossils? So historically, the museum's got its fossils from a number of different places. So we go out and mount our own expeditions, often in collaboration with local workers in the countries of origin. And in some cases, those fossils come back to the museum. In other cases, we've been donated and gifted specimens by people who have bought specimens privately or collected them themselves and then given them to us. In other cases, we have actually bought things from a variety of professional dealers. And when we do that, we 
try and work with only with those that are engaged with the kind of ethics behind fossil collection. We require lots of proof of legality of collection, of the title of who owns the specimen at the time that it's collected. And we also want to see that they've collected all of the contextual information with those fossils that are of value to us as scientists. Um, but over the years, we've acquired dinosaur skeletons using all of those routes. And could you give some examples of dinosaur fossils at the museum acquired through kind of commercial channels? Perhaps our most conspicuous recent purchase is our Stegosaurus skeleton, which is nicknamed Sophie, and which greets visitors when they come into one of the main museum entrances. And this is a skeleton that we acquired from a commercial fossil collector in 2014, and we acquired it from them already fully excavated, prepared from the rock, and exhibition ready. So we're now wandering over to have a look at Sophie. So although Sophie is mainly out on public display, most of the skeletons out there, one part of Sophie that's not on public display is the skull. And the reason for that being the skull is very fragile, and so we use a model of the skull on the mount outside, whereas the real bones are tucked away down here safely in our research collection. So I'm just getting the box out of the drawer now. This is Sophie's skull, which is almost complete, but which is preserved with most of the bones separate from each other, which makes it a very valuable research specimen as well. So we do have a couple of other Stegosaurus skulls known around the world, but they're big blocks. They're kind of all the bones are melded together, so it's difficult to see how everything fits. Whereas with Sophie, we can literally look at it almost like a, a kind of little engineering set and work out how all those bones relate to each other. So what we've got is a, a lovely cardboard box with a kind of black styrofoam base with bits of the skull embedded in it. And so we've got a kind of nice big chunk, which is the base of the skull, where it'll attach to kind of the neck vertebra. And then we've got a series of bits and pieces, fairly large in size, uh, through the rest of the box, one of which is the teeth. Exactly right. So the bit that you're standing your closest to is the back of the skull, where it connects with the neck and also the area where the brain would have been. You can see it's pretty small. This area that the brain's in would have probably only been about the size of a small plum. So we're not talking about anything that's going to be kind of winning prizes for crossword puzzles or anything here. And this very long, slender, elegant-looking bone is actually one of the lower jaws of the animal with its little sockets for the teeth just at the front and this area at the back where the jaw muscles would have attached. This is part of the upper jaw, some of the little bones that surround the eyes. And this is the very tip of the snout, the kind of beaky bit at the front. Oh, wow. Can I hold it? I'm going to yes, yes, touch yes. it, but not I'm particularly. Yes. Can I feel the teeth? You can. Sophie is the most complete Stegosaurus skeleton ever found. And because it was found in three dimensions and with all of the parts intact, we were actually able to get a lot more information about the skeleton of Stegosaurus than we ever had before. So the only other really, really good skeleton of Stegosaurus is in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. It was last described over 100 years ago. And we've not added much to our knowledge of Stegosaurus since then. So one of the things we've been doing with Sophie is we do have the advantage of using new techniques to look at it now. So we did CT scan the skull. And one of the things we did with that was build a virtual three-dimensional model of the skull. And we were then able to use various engineering packages to work out how hard Sophie could bite and work out what its feeding might have been like. And we always used to think that Stegosaurus was pretty pathetic at biting things, actually. We thought it had fairly weak jaws, not very good at chewing. But actually, this work shows it actually could bite quite hard, a bit like a sheep or a cow, which doesn't sound great, but if you eat plants, that's actually doing pretty well. So this animal is able to eat much tougher food than we thought before, and we only found that out thanks to this new specimen. The Natural History Museum bought Sophie privately, which let Paul and his team do all of this fascinating scientific work. But a lot of institutions are unable to pay the increasingly large price tags for specimens like Sophie. 
And the Natural History Museum is a bit of an outlier because it has large volumes of donations as well. Most public institutions are a lot less well-resourced. These aren't the only problems that museums and other public institutions have when dealing with commercially-oriented paleontologists. There is a set of broader tensions as well between professional academic paleontologists and their commercial paleontologist peers. I sat back down with Paul to dive into this in more detail. So if we go back into the history of the subject, many of the fossils that we find in the older museums around the world were actually acquired by private paleontologists, if you like, people who were independently wealthy or that were doing this job for money, and then the museums would purchase those fossils. So museums have been used to buying fossils from fossil collectors ever since they were established. But this has become an industry in its own right, especially more recently, where there are professional crews that go out to excavate dinosaur fossils with the sole purpose of selling them either to private individuals or to museums. And this is a new aspect of commercial paleontology in a bigger scale than we've ever had before. To what extent is there resistance within academic paleontology to this? So there is resistance among a number of my colleagues around the world to the buying and selling of fossils. This comes from a deep-seated belief that fossils, if you like, are a cultural commons for all mankind. They're something that tell us about our deep history, about the evolution of the earth and the evolution of life. And it's thought that those things should belong to everybody rather than particular individuals. So the major problem that some people would have is with some of those specimens disappearing into private collections that may never be seen again and that may never have any science done with them, even though those specimens may be of scientific significance. And the other issue that they often have with private collectors is that they're worried that a lot of the contextual information with fossils, the exact details of where they're from and the rocks they're encased within and the other animals and plants within them isn't always recorded and is lost. My understanding is beyond just the kind of antagonism. This has taken institutional forms as well. So my understanding is some journals will not publish papers uh, with fossils that have been found commercially. Could you talk a bit about that? It's not so much they won't publish papers on commercially found fossils. It's that they won't publish papers on fossils in non-public collections. So, And the reason for that is that science is based on the whole idea of reproducibility, that different scientists can come along at different times in the future, look at these data again, because we regard those bones as data on the history of life and be able to re-examine them potentially using new techniques or fresh eyes to check that the observations that have already been made on them are true or to extend those observations. But when fossils are kept in private collections, access to those collections is granted by the owner and it's not always clear what the future of those specimens will be, whereas museums aim to give access to that material in perpetuity. So journals who are interested in seeing published papers that have reproduced producible results tend to reject the idea that we should be working on collections that are held privately. What are the knock-on impacts on the scientific process? So at the worst, what happens is a really great specimen goes into a private collection and is never seen again. And that specimen may be something that's never been seen before. It may be a new species. It may exhibit some features that tell us about the biology of an animal that was simply unknown. And if they do disappear into these private collections, then that knowledge is lost to all of us forever. So there are definite downsides to doing this. And even if access is given to that specimen, say, initially, but is then withdrawn, then we're not allowed to verify those facts. We're not allowed to double-check them. And we don't have the opportunity to use new technologies as they come along to go out and look at these things with fresh eyes or in new ways. So, for example, when I started as a PhD student, things like CT scanning were relatively rare. And now they've become a very common component of describing a fossil in detail. Similarly, there are chemical techniques that we now use 
on fossils that simply didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago, which tell us a lot more about the biology of these animals, about the environments they were living in. And you can only do those kinds of things if you've got the real fossil in front of you. Even these days when we have great methods of reproducing fossils using 3D printing and imaging them uh, in great detail, some things you really still need the original bones for. And if we don't get the access to that original material, then we can't do that work. We'll be back with Dylan in just a moment, where he'll explore the other side of the debate, why privately selling dinosaurs could actually help to increase the scientific understanding of ancient reptiles. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today on Babbage, we're asking whether selling fossils means that important specimens are lost to science. I'm joined once again by the economist Dylan Berry. Dylan, so far we've explored the private market and concerns around the sale of fossils in places like America, where landowners have commercial rights to the specimens found on their property. But what about elsewhere? That's a tricky one. The States, in some ways, is an outlier on this front. So in a place like the States, if you're a private landowner, you find a fossil on your private land, it's yours, and you can do with it what you please. But uh, in all kinds of other places, the fossils are property of the state, no matter where they're found. That changes the dynamic a little bit, though, because, of course, you've still got people around finding fossils on their land and potentially wanting to sell them. And this has led to the establishment of quite a thriving black market in dinosaur fossils and other fossils, too. To get into some of the details about this, I asked Paul Barrett about the the spread of different legal regimes governing the ownership of fossils internationally. There are no universal rules governing the legality of fossils around the world. It varies very much from country to country, and there's no binding legal requirement, say, from the United Nations or UNESCO that governs the trade in fossils. So it very much comes down to local law. Some countries, for example, China, ban all permanent export of all significant fossils from their territories. And these are laws that came in in the 1980s in China and are fairly well enforced. But nevertheless, we still see fossils from China appearing at fossil fairs and in rock shops around the world. And this varies all the way through to places where there are essentially no laws to deal with fossils, or at least none that prevent their exports. So there is a patchwork all the way through from it being completely illegal activity, all the way through to it being a completely legal and above board. And could you just list some of the places around the world where export is legal? So export is definitely illegal from a number of very productive countries, including China, Brazil and Mongolia. And if you ever saw fossils from these on sale in a rock shop or a fossil fair, they almost certainly left the country of origin illegally. Could you talk a little bit about the international black market in dinosaur fossils? There are a number of ways in which dinosaur fossils leave countries illegally. So unfortunately, it becomes very complicated because 
there are no reciprocal laws to do with dinosaur fossils in different countries. So although, for example, it might be illegal for a fossil to leave China, this does not make it illegal for it to enter the United States. So there are lots of legal loopholes that can be exported by people who are buying and selling fossils, because in the country that the selling actually takes place or the buying actually takes place, it may actually be perfectly legal to do that, whereas the country of origin might regard this as an illegal act. So probably at some risk to the people doing the exporting, because if corporate they would be subject to those penalties. And what we tend to find also with those kinds of operators is they're not only flouting the law in terms of export, but they also tend to be at the less careful end of excavating things. They may, for example, be selling you specimens that are cobbled together from several different specimens to make them look more complete. They may be excavating them from sites that they're damaging or not collecting any information from. So there tends to be a relationship between the people who are doing this kind of work illegally and also the lack of other useful information that they're gathering and damage that they're doing at the same time. And where do these fossils tend to turn up? And do professional academic paleontologists get access to them in the end? These fossils might turn up anywhere. They may turn up simply because someone's bought them privately, not knowing that they have been illegally exported. So there's a very high profile case recently where the Hollywood actor Nicolas Cage bought a Tarbosaurus specimen and he was unaware of the fact that this would have been illegally exported from Mongolia. And after having found this out, he arranged for it to be returned to Mongolia, which was a nice kind of good story that came out of all of the kind of interest that there now is in dinosaur fossils as a commodity. But these might turn up in an average fossil shop. They might turn up at a fossil fair somewhere around the world. It's very difficult to police because there are lots of different dealers, different scales, and there are lots of different routes by which these things can end up in the marketplace. eBay is another good example of where things turn up that really shouldn't be on the market. Could you talk a little bit as well about some of the documentation that you would expect from a legally collected fossil? So often there is no documentation with an illegally exported fossil. And there are examples also where people have falsified permits or they have cited permits with different kinds of material on or misquoted its value. So one infamous case of a fossil collector importing from Mongolia actually falsified the value of these things on a customs form, which was how he was actually caught, because he tried to sell this specimen much later for a multi-million dollar amount, but claimed it was only worth a few thousand dollars on the customs form. And that's the reason why they were caught and convicted of that crime. But the mere fact they brought dinosaur fossils from Mongolia into the US itself was not a crime, because it's not illegal to import dinosaurs, it's illegal to export them from Mongolia. And the two countries don't have reciprocal laws that recognise each other. And what are governments doing about this problem? Is there any level of sort of international collaboration or cooperation or cracking down on the trade? At the moment, not really. So there's no overarching legal framework for the international scene on this at all. So UNESCO do have rules that apply very strictly to things like archaeological material and human artifacts, but fossils are a bit left out of this. They're not really explicitly dealt with. There have been some nice recent high-profile examples of governments cooperating to repatriate material. In the case of the Tarbosaurus material that was seized in the US, that was returned to Mongolia as an act of goodwill. So there are signs that there is a movement towards this. And paleontologists do try and lobby for this kind of things to change. But there has been historically just less activity in that area about trying to level up all of these different legal frameworks around the world. 
Is it fair to say that the black market is really a different order of magnitude of, of negative impact on the scientific process than the kind of legal commercial trade in fossils? I think that would be fair to say because often the black marketeers are damaging sites, they're removing scientific context, they're often actually doing more damage than good by bringing that material into any kind of public realm at all. So at least a large number of the professional fossil collectors will be doing their very best to maximise the scientific value of the specimen, partly because that to its commercial value when they want to sell it on. Whereas the black marketeers are just interested in a quick buck. And in addition to the scientific damage, it's also obviously ethically and legally suspect. Okay, Dylan, thank you for taking us out on a field trip to the museum. So both of the ideas you've talked about, the private sales of dinosaurs and the illegal trade, seem to result in specimens being lost to science. Now, of course, as Paul just explained, the magnitude of the impacts are different. But let's talk hypotheticals for a moment. What would happen if the auctions were no longer allowed to happen? So that's an interesting one. So I think when we're talking about the commercial trade in fossils, it's useful to understand that this happens at various scales. You've got fossils that are legally owned coming out of the United States, being sold there and being sold internationally, potentially also from places like Europe where ownership of fossils is also above board. The biggest, most spectacular fossils go on sales at these auctions and get sold for millions and millions of dollars. But there are all kinds of other smaller scales. So if you go to any flea market, you'll find legally owned fossils that are legally on sale. The issue is when the fossils are sold from a place like China or Mongolia or Brazil where ownership is illegal. And that's where we get into trouble. An interesting question would be what would happen if we banned the commercial trade altogether? So even if a place like the United States or European countries, if they cracked down on it aggressively, made fossil ownership only the prerogative of the state or limited fossil ownership only to states, it's unlikely that that would stop the trade in fossils. The reality is people are finding fossils all the time. It is hard enough to stamp out black markets for things like narcotics and things that have much more obviously negative societal impacts. I think it's highly unlikely that the trade in fossils would disappear. The difference with having a commercial trade is that you can regulate it and have the proceeds of the sales and the, and the commercial trade impact people positively and in an above board way. But do some of those academic paleontologists who are against the auctions actually want private sales to be banned altogether? The paleontologists who have a principal philosophical distaste for private ownership of fossils in any way, shape, or form would obviously love to see the trade limited as much as possible. And obviously, they would like to see the black market crack down on as well. Those are not mutually exclusive. In those people's minds, those two things fit very neatly together. One of the arguments as well is I think a lot of paleontologists are in general distrustful. There's been limited exposure for, I think, a lot of paleontologists to their more commercially oriented peers. The commercial trade is a bit of an abstract boogeyman rather than something practical and meaningful made up of people that you can negotiate with and make compromises with. And I think a lot of paleontologists also worry that the booming trade and especially the kind of headline grabbing auctions potentially fuel greater demand on the black market as well. So I think there's a fear of an indirect effect of a booming legal trade on also creating an even greater black market trade. And the worry is that the benefits of the legal commercial trade, even where there are benefits, might be outweighed by fueling the black market trade even further. So it sounds like a real conundrum for the field, but I can see why a well-regulated private trade might be less damaging to science when you look at the whole picture. Exactly. 
It's very controversial. There remain very heated debates within paleontology between paleontologists over this. There's definitely no consensus in the field. It's one of the few things where you can really say it splits the field almost perfectly in two. But yeah, there are certainly some strong arguments why private trade in fossils might be a boon to paleontology. And to chat about this, I spoke to Cassandra Hatton, the vice president and head of natural history at Sotheby's. Right now, we hold them once or twice a year. Previously, we had fossil sales in Paris before. So it was really experimental to try these sales in New York to see if they would stick because there hadn't really been any major natural history sales run by an international auction house in New York. And the response was fantastic. And so it wasn't so much people who had been collecting fossils all their lives, but people who had been buying objects of significance across category. So it was really nice to see the response that we got from buyers in New York. What is your sense of buyers' commitment to scientific discovery and the scientific endeavor? How amenable do they tend to be, for example, to allowing the kind of fossils they've bought to be open to research and to have scientists have a look at them? Overwhelmingly, the clients that I've worked with have asked me, is this something you think a museum would like to have? Almost every client I've worked with has expressed the desire to go on and donate or loan what they've purchased to museums. I don't think that I've worked with anybody who did not have a profound respect for what these fossils are and who didn't have the desire to share these objects with other people. Many of the fossils that I've sold will end up in museums if those museums will accept the donations. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yes. From what I understand, and this has come from clients of mine who own fossils and have tried to loan them to museums, is that there are many institutions that will not accept loans of fossils from private individuals. What I understand is that the reasoning is that the museum can't control how long they will have the fossil, but having been involved in loans of other objects to other institutions, you absolutely can agree on a loan term. You can agree on, you know, five-year, 20-year, 50-year, 100-year loan. I mean, there are contracts that are signed. So it seems that maybe there's something else going on. I can't speak for the institutions. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure what the tension is. I know it's there. I've seen a lot of opposition to these sales coming from academics, coming from institutions, but just seems strange to me coming from another world where everybody really works hand in hand. I mean, for books and manuscripts, some of the biggest collectors have turned their collections into libraries where they invite traveling researchers. They'll host them in their home. I I even know one collector who's purchased the house next door so he can host scholars wanting to come and consult his collection. And that is like something that brings him so much joy. And I'm sure that many of the people who are buying fossils would love to do something similar. I imagine you do quite a lot of vetting to ensure, for example, that your fossils are legitimate, they haven't come from the black market. Do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of documentation involved, the requirements, what it takes from a potential seller for Sotheby's to be willing to assist and jump on board an auction item? 
For fossil, first and foremost, we have to know where it was found. So I need GPS coordinates for the find. I then need to determine who owns the land that it was found on. If the landowner isn't the person who excavated the fossil, I need to know who the person is that excavated it. I need to see documentation to prove that they had permission to excavate the fossil on that land. Going back to the GPS coordinates, those GPS coordinates need to be in the United States. <laughs> Canada has fantastic fossils, but they do not allow the export of most vertebrates. China, Mongolia, the same thing. Fantastic fossils, but they do not allow the export. So I need to make sure that these fossils were sourced in a place where they are allowed to be legally sold if found on private land. The next step is to make sure that it's actually a fossil and not a reproduction. So I need to see a site map of the dig site. I want photographs of the fossils as they are being excavated. I want to see a total inventory of all of the fossil elements of that skeleton. I want to see a listing of the different bone elements. Like I really need to see it all with my own eyes. Another thing that I check for are copyright issues. Bones come with copyright. So you really need to rigorously document which parts of your skeleton are original fossil and which parts are cast from another specimen. It's very complex and there's a lot that goes into vetting everything. One of the concerns that paleontologists have raised is when you're talking with buyers is that there's this fear of the kind of abstract, unscrupulous secret buyer, this kind of concern over the people's intentions with the fossil. And if, if there are, well, there's two things. The first thing is, will people know where the fossil has gone? Has it gone into a kind of black hole of secrecy or, or anonymity? And the second thing is, even if they know who the owner is, does the owner allow access to scientists? When you are, you know, choosing who's allowed at your auctions or not, or, or who gets a fossil in the end, is this something that Sotheby's is able to control in any way? Or is that kind of beyond the pale of what Sotheby's is able to do? That is beyond what we do. We vet clients financially. We make sure they're not money launderers or terrorists or other types of criminals. We make sure that they can pay for the fossils or anything that they're buying at Sotheby's. But we have to be able to pass on full ownership and clear title to anything that we sell. We're not allowed to limit the buyers based on what their plans are for an item. And that goes for anything that we're selling. My response to this, and this is a question that I have been asked regarding manuscripts and other objects, is what do we do if it disappears forever? Well, nothing disappears forever. And maybe researchers right now may not have the opportunity to research it, but somebody in the future will. There are so many great cultural objects that were in private collections that then resurfaced. I mean, this is how museums were started by collectors who had the means to not just acquire these objects, but preserve them, catalog them, take care of them, insure them. So I, I just don't see how fossils are any different than anything else. Every other collecting category has figured out that the collector is the friend of the category. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the recent natural history auction by Sotheby's and some of the headline items that were sold? 
We had fossils, minerals, meteorites. The top two fossils in the sale were a pteranodon fossil. Uh, the other specimen we offered was a plesiosaur, which we are working on selling privately right now. And can you tell us how much that pterodon went for? $3.9 million. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar result for a fossil that hasn't been offered before. Something of this completeness, of this size. Two million six hundred. A two million six. Two eight. Two eight with Ben. Two million eight hundred thousand. I think this is the most that a non-dinosaur fossil has ever sold for. Is that true? I think that is correct. Thank you for pointing that out. So Dylan, it sounds like fossil sales are big business. Give us the rundown. What does it look like? Yeah, the recent sale had a pterodon. It's not a dinosaur, but a close-winged relative and contemporary, something like a pterodactyl. To put that into context, earlier this year, a tyrannosaurus named Trinity went for about $6.2 million. Last year, there were a record six major sales of dinosaur fossils. Two Camptosauruses went for $700,000, $1.2 million respectively. A Triceratops went for about $700,000 as well. A Gorgosaurus skeleton went for $6.1 million. And biggest of all that year, a Deinonychus, a kind of raptor named Hector, went for $12.4 million. That's incredible. But as we bring the show to a close, let's return to that tension between the private paleontology industry and the academics. How does that get resolved? Where do we go from here? Well, that's a good question. We're at a situation now where there are real potential benefits to having a commercial trade in dinosaur fossils, but there are real cons as well. You know, there is a large, thriving black market, and there certainly are commercial sellers and commercial prospectors who are less than scrupulous and who are potentially damaging fossils in the process of excavation and certainly aren't collecting as much scientific information as they could. The best way to deal with this is basically to get everybody in the room, along with policymakers and lawmakers, and just get regulations in place that mean that we are getting the maximum benefit out of the trade with the minimum costs to the scientific endeavor. Let me prod you a little bit deeper on that. What do you think should happen? Do you think that there should be private sales or do you think it should be part of the patrimony of the world? I am swayed by one particular argument. What is fascinating is that in the kind of modern age of scientific discovery and incredible scientific tools, many of which have transformed fields like archaeology and paleontology in other ways, we still rely almost essentially on luck to find dinosaur fossils. Basically, somebody has to trip over the thing. That means that the quickest way to increase the number of fossils that we're finding, the only real way to increase the number of fossils we're finding and the rate at which we're finding them is to have more people looking for the fossils. The best way to have more people looking for fossils is to have them be valuable. The major, major advantage of the commercial trade in fossils is that it means that there are more people out there looking for fossils and finding fossils that otherwise would just be destroyed and eroded away by natural processes. As time goes on, the winter comes, ice forms, water will move into cracks in the rock, it freezes, bits of rock break off, the summer comes, the heat heats up the rocks, you've got cracks form again, you've got this constant process of weathering. As that happens, new fossils are exposed, and then they also weather away. And so for all of the fossils that we potentially lose every year, maybe they disappear to science because of unscrupulous owners or sellers, we're losing many, many more just to nature. And so even if we can increase marginally the rate of discovery, we might find some finds that otherwise would have been destroyed. 
What about the idea that we can have it both ways? That we could say that if we find dinosaur bones, that it must be documented under a certain standards and protocols, can still be sold privately, but at least we have the research element of knowing A, when it was found, where it was found, who found it, the provenance of who owns it, and information about the findings. So if there is something original about that particular bones, that scientists can know about it. Well, exactly. And this is where moving beyond just tensions and antagonism and moving to a point where people are all in the room talking about this together could make a big difference. So if you could get paleontologists and major public institutions willing to work closely with potential fossil prospectors to train them potentially in some of these techniques to sort of share documentation standards, you could get the auction houses in as well to make sure that they're only willing to work with buyers and sellers who are willing to abide by certain rules. We we need to get to a point where we've established norms that mean that these two worlds the kind of commercial world of million-dollar sales and the academic world of real cutting-edge scientific research can benefit each other and, and work together smoothly rather than being at loggerheads. So it seems like the commercialization of dinosaur fossils might be a good thing for science, not a drawback. It certainly could be. Dylan, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks to Clayton Phipps, Paul Barrett, Cassandra Hatton, and of course, the economist Dylan Barry. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And if you like what we do, read more. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Economist and get one month of our digital content for free. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design this week by Timo Sila. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Thanks also to Stevie Hertz for additional production support. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. We all need to write for work, want to improve, Bolster your skills with Economist Education's six-week online course. You'll explore the craft of writing and learn from The Economist's editors how to engage and persuade. Whether it's vibrant memos, pithy social media posts, or storytelling with data. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code WRITING. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing. 